Oh, Bill's going to use this. Okay. Um, let me first, before Bill comes up, let me introduce Bill. Um, the ones of us who went uh, to Guatemala uh, met and, and uh, really got to know Bill. And, uh, but for you, he's now part of our family because we've all, we've all really got to know him. And it was really good to see you again. And um, I saw my sister greeted you. <laughs> you saw Lori. And um, uh, so, so Bill, just to get a little bit of background, he, he was born in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. So he's, he's, a, he's a badger. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very akin to, to Euperism. And he spent the last couple of days hunting in my camp. Unfortunately, he didn't get any deer, but he, he's a, bow hunting is not, you know, for the faint of heart. I mean, he was out there, if you remember Thursday morning, it was 17 degrees. And he was out there in all his long underwear and all get out, and he's somehow managed to be out there all day long. I can't even sit all day. I can sit a couple hours. But uh, So he's also a real good Packers fan. So, so Hank, you and he need to, need to talk about that. He's, he's a really big Packer fan. But more than anything, he's his brother. He's a brother in Christ. He loves the Lord. And he's going to tell us about his work and uh, especially um, the, the, the work. He's now pastoring two churches in Cuba City. Someone said he's in Cuba. And I'm like, Cuba? Is he, is he going to do some whole new thing in Cuba? I didn't realize it was Cuba, Wisconsin. Um, so he's going to talk about the power of the gospel. The amazing thing is, is, uh, is in Isaiah 55, 11. It says, the word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty or void in other translations but it shall accomplish what I purpose. And that's just an amazing, you're going to see and hear an amazing story of how the translated word, which he went there 40 some years ago and translated uh, the gospel. He, he, he didn't know the language. There was no written language. And um, it is, it is truly a miracle, but you're going to find out the miracle of the gospel. He also helped with the Jesus film uh, translation and is currently helping with the Jesus film translations and uh, production of the Jesus films there. Um, so I could go on and on. But uh, the other thing, verse I wanted to uh, remind you of Ephesians 6.17 says, Take on the helmet of salvation, which we have, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And nothing's more powerful than the Word of God. Here you go, Bill. Do, do you want the speaker? or, or the, the, oh, the yeah. Right. Kind of a roamer, except when I'm sitting in a deer stand all day. Then I just, right there. My daddy told me when I was 12 years old, started hunting in southwest Wisconsin. Uh, put me on my deer stand. He said, don't you move all day long. I'll be back here to pick you up at 4.30. <laughs> and so I was there. And uh, that's where I learned it from. How are you folks doing? Everybody okay? All right. Are you ready to kind of buckle up your seatbelts here and take in a lot of information? Um, that's what uh, that's what we're about right here. Okay, just to just to share the things of God, and especially as it relates to what is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter one verse number sixteen: the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I'd like you to, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament. After the Israelites were taken into Israel or into, into exile, um, someone discovered that Jeremiah had written that it would be 70 years in exile. And uh, after about 50 years, they started to return to Jerusalem, and there were three massive exoduses that took place from Babylon, which had now become Persia by this time. Cyrus, Darius, and now King Artaxerxes uh, were in power in succession 
Artaxerxes happens to be the stepson of Queen Esther. That's where the influence comes from for Artaxerxes to permit Nehemiah to return to build the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now, Ezra had already gone back in the second exodus from Babylonia back to Jerusalem. Ezra took part, and he rebuilt the temple. The temple is now extant. It's there when Nehemiah returns, and then he's responsible for building the defenses around the holy temple of God. There's a tremendous, expansive plaza or marketplace between the walls of the city of Jerusalem and the door of the temple itself. And that is the scenario in which the events in chapter 8 take place. Now, I'm going to read real quickly here and then kind of uh, pick out some high points here to kind of illustrate to you what it means to be a translator, uh, what that involves, and the importance of that in so far as the meaning of what is translated finds a dwelling place, a home, a lodging in the hearts of the listeners, the recipients, and then how that changes their behavior. I'm one who believes that our behavior is bottom line based upon what we have accepted to be truth. And the truth that we have accepted becomes our theology. And if it's grounded in the basics, the fundamentals of the Word of God, we will not go astray. What we choose to believe finds its outworking in how we behave, how we live our lives, so that ultimately what we do as a follower of Jesus Christ stems from and flows out of what we have accepted to be truth. And all truth is God's truth, and all truth is, is, is discovered through what he has written for us, the Holy Scriptures. And what comes out of that understanding also kind of fleshes out what becomes truth in our lives as we experience it. The experience part of truth also becomes fundamentally what we choose to believe and then how it displays itself in what we do as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me go to the text here. Um, this, uh, this whole thing about the, the, the martyrs and uh, those who suffer for the cause of Christ. I was listening to the beautiful words and the song and the music, and, and I couldn't help but think of how grateful we should be for the release of Pastor Brunson from Turkey recently. What a blessing. What an answer to prayer. And uh, I, I was just moved by his reception there in the White House. Uh, let's go ahead and read this section of Scripture. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 without comment, and then I'll review it. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. Now, who is all the people? We find that in chapter 7, verses uh, 66, 67. Uh, and you total that up, and there's 49,942. What's the population of Marquette? Is it that big? Okay, approximately. The population of Marquette, Michigan, is gathered at the gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, now he had already been there, the second exodus from Babylon. He has become a resident, actually, and he is the leading scribe. He is 
God's man. He is the representative of all that represents holiness and godliness to the people that were gathered at this time. And so as their leader, the people asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. He was in charge of the great synagogue at that time before the temple, which the Lord had given to Israel. All right, where did it come from? It came from God. It was given to the Israelites. We're talking here about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's it. That's what they had. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. We're talking people 12 years old and up. All who could understand. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Commentaries say six hours. Okay? 50,000 people, six hours listening to the reading of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Let that sink in. Let that settle down in your heart. Then it says, He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women, those who could understand it. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. All the people were attentive to the book of the law for six hours. Then it says, as the scribes stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood, and I'm not going to pronounce the names of all these guys, but there's 13 of them besides Ezra. Ezra opened the book, verse 5, in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. So not only are there 50,000 people in the marketplace, from 6 o'clock in the morning till noon, they are standing doesn't mention anything about porta potties here, so you know that kind of logistics is is, is not included. <laughs> then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, "Amen, Amen," while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You know, picture that in your mind. Just take that in for a second. Then there are another list here of thirteen men, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place, standing, listening to the reading of the scripture, and then listening to the explanation done by 13 other guys. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, but the 13 guys standing on the platform with Ezra took turns reading the scriptures. I remember one time when I was pastoring in Youngstown, Ohio, we decided to read the whole Bible. On the courts, on the steps of the courthouse, it took us six days, day and night, with uh, um, uh, generators and, and, and microphone systems and all that for six days. We read the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, 24 hours, seven days. And, and just, just tremendously exciting. 13 guys now are Sunday school teachers. They're explaining what the Word of God means as the readers are reading it. And then it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, not only reading the Bible, explaining it, but translating it to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, why did they have to translate? Well, because the Israelites were at least three generations in exile, where they learned to speak Aramaic, where they went to school learning other languages. And if they were scattered, as undoubtedly they were, throughout different provinces of the Babylonian Empire, they were learning dialects. 
and languages that were peculiar to the local culture, to the ethnic group in which they lived and found themselves. So there's 13 guys translating and explaining in the languages that were understood by that generation of Israelites now living in Jerusalem. Picture this, okay? How in the world, logistically, that was accomplished, I have no idea, without the benefit of one of these things. And, and how 13 guys listening to the scriptures, interpreting it, translating it into the languages so that these Israelites could now understand it in the language that they had learned at their mother's knee. Three generations had gone by, at least, maybe even four, from the time they had exited, fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem down into Babylon. Captives, slaves, but they had learned another culture, another way of life, other languages. And so uh, this is what's going on for six hours after the walls had been successfully completed. Walls represent defense. They represent um, security. They represent hope for the future. And that's all that walls meant. Um, don't get me talking about a wall on the southern border of the United States of America. That's another topic, okay? But this is, you know, where that's coming from. Defense, security, future, hope, all of that stuff is included. Now, it's, would you turn over to Esther real quick? I just want to point out here the, the, the backdrop of all of this. Queen Esther comes uh, in the middle of all of this, still back in what is now Iran, Persia, okay, where Babylon was. And she was, became married, actually, to uh, Ahasuerus, who was the first Xerxes. His son, Artaxerxes, was in power when Nehemiah left Babylon with permission. And, uh, and so Artaxerxes, once again, is the stepson of Esther. In, in verse number 1, in chapter 22, it says, uh, this word, well, ch chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 21, this word pleased the king and the princes and the king did as Memucan proposed, so he sent letters to all the king's provinces. Now, this is back in Babylon, in, in, in exile, in slavery, to each province according to its script. Get that. They all had alphabets, different alphabets, in the different provinces where the different languages were spoken and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Now, why is that important? Well, the message that the king is sending out has to do with leadership in a home. And what then was translated or transferred to the occupants of households was done so by the, the, the parent, the father, in this case, to his wife, to his children, in the language that they understood best. You know, when, when important truth is communicated, if we want it to find its home in the hearts of people, it's, it's, it's just obligatory that it be done so in the language that is the heart language, that is the living language of the people who live in that ethnic group, in that culture. And you know, there, there is that to which they will respond intuitively, wholly, and, and I believe scripturally, when they finally hear it 
in a language that is meaningful, that is understood. Now, for whatever reason, the Mayan people of the country of Guatemala lived in that country long before the conquistadores came over in the 15th century, and before Pedro de Alvarado, who was the captain in charge of the conquering of the Mayan Empire from southern Mexico all the way down to Nicaragua under the, um, the, the Spanish conquistador, went into Guatemala and on the plains of the second largest city in the country of Guatemala, Quetzaltenango, defeated, conquered the hero, the champion of the Quiche Nation, whose name was Tecumumang. And tradition goes like this. Tecumumang was not on horseback. The horses came from Europe. Pedro de Alvarado was on horseback. And the Indians surmised that horse and rider were one and the same. And Tecumumang thrust his spear into the chest of the horse, and the chest dropped over, but Pedro de, la, de Alvarado, with a, a, a kind of a, of, a, of a spear spade kind of a thing, just thrust it into the chest of Tecumumang, and his chest opened up and the blood splattered on a robin-sized bird called the Quetzal bird. Emerald green bird, which since that time until the present, the male of the species has a red breast like a robin. That's their tradition. That's their legend. That's their history. It's passed down by oral tradition from generation to generation to generation from the time that it actually happened. Now, there's a little bit of fable in all of that. And, of course, we engrandize the stories of all of our champions, as the Quiche people did. For some reason, God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, prompted in my spirit that I should translate that story. That was the very first story that I ever translated. Domingo Kishan, my language helper, was the guy who taught me his language. Another story, which I'll go into perhaps tomorrow. Anyway, I learned the language from Domingo Kishan. And Domingo Kishan relayed to me in an old nine-inch by nine-inch reel-to-reel tape recorder. Now, many of you here, like me, have gray hair. You know what that is. The younger generation probably don't understand what a tape recorder is all about. Well, he, he spoke into a very tiny microphone the story of their legendary hero, Tecumumang, which I meticulously, tediously translated. It took me about three weeks to get every word stopping and starting, pushing and stopping the buttons on the 9 by 9 real tape recorder. Okay, I, 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 I translated it into the phonetic alphabet, which I learned in linguistics classes in college. And so I had, I want to say, probably six or eight pages, handwritten, story of Tecumumang in the phonetic alphabet that I could read back to him because I knew what the symbols on the pages, the sound that it stood for, and I would read it back to Domingo, correcting and revising and editing and practicing the pronunciation so that I could get it perfectly. And finally the day came wherein Domingo was satisfied with my gringo pronunciation of his language and all of the phrases and 
uh, all of the, you know, the, the sentences and the, and the paragraphs were in order. And I took that to the marketplace in 1971. Now, uh, some of you have been to Guatemala, and you know that the Guatemalan people, well, let's put it this way. In Guatemala, you get a lot of belly button hugs because they're roughly half our size. So I'm a pretty big person, okay? Besides the color of my skin and uh, my, my language and all that was different. So I'm standing in the marketplace with a bullhorn on a Sunday morning. And on a Sunday morning in any town in Guatemala where there's a marketplace, there is a quiet hum that resonates throughout the whole of the marketplace because sellers are wanting to sell a product to a person who's standing in line without the next person in line understanding what the conversation is all about because that person might want the same article and maybe I can get a little more from him if I don't tell this first guy the price in an audible fashion so the second guy in line can, can hear. So that's what's going on. There's these hum-like conversations going on. Deals are being made. I began to read the story of Tecumumang in the marketplace comprised of probably 90 to 95% Mayan. And I had a bullhorn, and I read the story from the pages that I had typed out now with the phonetic alphabet that I had plugged into an old-fashioned Smith Corona typewriter. I read the story, and while, when I started to read the story, there were just a few people standing. They started to listen, and little by little, the crowd swelled. From time to time, I would look up. I didn't wear glasses then, but I could see over top of the page, and people were stopping what they were doing and coming over to listen to the story of their national hero being read to them from a piece of paper. It took me about 25 minutes to complete the reading of the story of their national hero. Here is a tall, white foreigner reading in a language that they understand, because I'd practice and practice and practice. And I read it to them so that they could understand a familiar story to every one of them. It had been handed down through oral tradition for generations. They're hearing it for the very first time in 1971 in their history, read to them from a piece of paper. And I got to be a, a little nervous because now the crowd is, I want to say, 150, 200 people. By the time I got done after 25 minutes, there was probably four or 500 people standing in just ever-widening concentric circles around me in a semicircle. And I got done with the story, and I panicked. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't understand a lot of the ramifications that they and their culture understood before my coming. I got done. A gentleman, as far back as I could see, removed his hat, held it over his chest, and he said, foreigner, read it again. I had learned by that time, I, I arrived in Guatemala in 68, this was 1971, I had learned that their culture respects anybody that has white hair, anybody who has age, that, that comes with wisdom and respect and honor. I had learned that, so I said, I sure will. So I began to read it the second time. I finished it the second time. Now we're talking pretty much to an hour. Gentleman over here on the left removed his hat, held it over his heart, and said, read it again. 
which I did. I read it for the third time, and after the third time through, the people began to disperse, and I could hear them buzzing and humming with conversation, excited, uh, talking in their own language. Lights were going on while I was reading it. I found out through my interpreter, Domingo Kisan, I explained to him what happened. He said to me, well, that's easy to explain. My name for them is Ta'yer. Ta'yer, he said to me, the Spanish taught us that our language was not worthy of being written down. What we spoke was like what animals do when they communicate, because your language is not worth being aired on the radio, much less on the televisions now. You don't write quiche in a telegram. You don't write a letter in quiche. You don't learn quiche in school. It's not in the newspapers. Check out the title of your pickup truck or the title to your property. Is that written in quiche? No. Your language is not worth being written, and that's why it's not written. Our language is written, like English and like French and like German, but your language, no. And here's this foreigner, this gringo, comes into town and, and, and writes out this story, and it's written on a piece of paper. I forgot to tell you, after I finished the story, there was three little girls that were friends of my daughter at that time, came up to me after I read the story and said, point, they pointed to the characters on the paper, and they said, say this and say this and say this, like little girls would do, third and fourth grade kids in school. And then they would giggle after I would say it, because they were learning Spanish with the Spanish alphabet in public school, Indian kids. And after I would finish with them, they said, can you teach us to read our language? That was the beginning of the literacy classes, those three little girls. The next day, they were at my house learning to read Quiche. And in about 15 minutes is all that it took them because a lot of the characters are the same in the Spanish alphabet. And so they, they began to learn to read in their own language. But you see, in, in, in one moment in time, because of what I did in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, at age 15, in responding to the call of a missionary that there are many, many tribes without the word of God still, won't you consider committing your life to full-time missionary service in another country where they don't speak a language that is written? I did that on a Friday night at summer camp, Crescent Lake Bible Camp, just, just across the border in Wisconsin. My daddy sent me to that camp. My daddy's a pastor and loves the Word of God. And I was impacted by the, the life of the five missionaries that were killed in 1956 in January, Jim Elliott among them, Phil Saint. I went to the same college that they went to. I, I dormed in, in Phil Saint's dormitory, St. Hall. Okay, I played on Macaulay football field at Wheaton College because the, the, the vision that God cast in me was specific with places, with times, with details. When I drove over for the first time and looked down into the valley of Hoyavach and saw that, God spoke to my heart very clearly, and he said something like this. This is why you were born. This is what you were all about. I don't know how many people God called before Abraham said, I'll do it. 
and he picked up and left. But he was the one that responded, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, God does not always call the gifted. <laughs> I flunked German in college. I'm not a natural linguist. But I will say this. I am the one who said yes to the Lord when he called me. That's the whole difference right there. A simple three-letter word, yes. Whenever he speaks, whenever he, he, he shows you direction, you respond obediently, and they will write history behind your name. doesn't make any difference where you come from, what you've done in your past. If you will say yes to Jesus, the results are indescribable, and your life will be a huge impact for the kingdom of God. And, and we had to leave Guatemala in 1984 after having completed the translation of the New Testament. Uh, we, we took it home in an attache case. It was just little cassette tapes then. Uh, and now you can just put it in a computer chip. You know, you can put that in your mouth if you want to. Anyway, uh, I came home with an attache case filled with 33 tapes with the whole New Testament. That was dedicated in 1985. We went back down after we had been removed from the country because of the Civil War. But we went back and went to Hoyavac, dedicated the New Testament. And between 1985, when the New Testament was dedicated, until I returned to translate the Old Testament in 1999, the church had grown from 250 baptized believers to well over 30,000. Now we're talking... From 1985 to, to 1990, 14 years, okay? And I asked the pastor, how in the world, what happened? Well, we had a civil war, you know, and there's nothing like suffering and sorrow and persecution and murder, okay, to, to drive people to their knees and to the truth of the gospel. The earthquake was in 1976. That brought a lot of people to faith in Christ as well. But the pastors, and you know, when I left, there weren't any pastors. They, they, you know, just were led of the Spirit of the Lord, and all the denominations are down there, okay? And, and, and God had handpicked his, his men, and, and people responded to the gospel. And they said, Bill, not yet. It's because we finally had the Word of God in our own language. And we finally understood what it was. It was always in Spanish, which was a foreign language to us. And it, what, we couldn't identify with that. But now it's in our tongue. It's the way we talk. And God speaks our language, and that is what has won the day for the gospel. Now there's well over 70,000 believers in a tribe of people that numbers less than 150,000. And there's a lot of work to do yet, but they have the complete Bible now, uh, thanks to, to a, a kid who is a preacher's kid, um, raised under the sound of the gospel, just watching people get killed in Ecuador, not watching it, but you know, being part of that, part of my life, and, uh, and going to a school that, that promoted missions, studying anthropology and linguistics, and then the end of the direction. There's a verse of scripture that, that, that explains it all to me. Look at, uh, let me see here, if I can nail it. Beginning of the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, 
by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Isn't that cool? How cool is that? You know, our country is divided. We're separated. We're at war. Civil war is going on as we speak in the United States of America. God will fulfill his word. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, okay, <laughs> God is in charge. Never, ever doubt him. He will follow through. He is faithful. His word will be fulfilled. And as Dr. Songer just read to you, it will not return void. Never discount small beginnings. Just the tiniest words spoken here and there, salt and peppered on our pagan culture today. God will do powerful things with that. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I don't know how much time I have. Am I done? Yeah. Okay. I rest my case. <laughs> God bless you. Everybody say amen. Amen. Does uh, anybody who not say yes? Oh, the hands up for people to say yes to God. <laughs> anyway, that's great. Um, now what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. Um, the, uh, the gym, we have a bunch of tables from our different missionaries. Um, actually, s several of our speakers, I'm not sure if all of our speakers have a table, um, but they have some uh, literature and promotional materials. I really want you to also personally talk one-on-one -on -one with them, and uh, uh, you can ask questions. Tomorrow we're going to have a little bit more of a casual during the, the uh, uh, Adult Bible F Fellowship Hour in the sanctuary where we're going to do some question answering. Uh, and also in the small groups, it's a time to open up and ask for questions. So like last year, what we're going to do after we have our break, um, Gary and Amy are going to play some music. Uh, although they've, they've got another session between the two um, sessions. So if you look at your schedule, you're going to go to three different rooms, and then we come back here, meet here. after. So the coffee break, we go to the three different sessions, come back here, we get to hear Gary and Amy uh, and their daughter again, at least. And, and then uh, we go back and have three mo more sessions and rotate to three different rooms. Now, what I can't remember, last year, everybody got a different number or alphabet letter for their, for their badge. Did we get that this year or no? Help me. Help me, Irma. Where's Irma? I, I will, I, if not, you'll have to just kind of break into the three rooms. Does there, did everybody get a signed room? We don't have that. So, uh, we don't? Nothing on the tag. Okay, I thought last year we had. So, You'll have to kind of 